organized, a citizen-run, a citizen-funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know of you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Welcome to the reconvening of the National Citizens' Inquiry. Commissioners, for the record, my name is Buckley Initial S. <clears throat> I'm attending this morning as agent for the Inquiry Administrator, the Honorable Chess Crosby. Mr. Crosby is also in attendance this morning. Commissioners, as lead counsel, for the National Citizens' Inquiry, I would like to make some opening remarks before you release your report. Today, <coughs> excuse me, today is November 28th, 2023. This is a historic day. We are making history. Never before have citizens banded together in such a formal, comprehensive, and fair way to inquire into the actions of their governments. Commissioners, you know that you are completely independent of the NCI administration. The inquiry rules permitted any interested party to intervene and participate in the process. We issued summons after summons, after summons to government officials, inviting them to attend and participate. That not a single government official chose to attend is now part of our historical record. And their absence speaks loudly. The National Citizens' Inquiry is also unique in its scope. We traveled across the country, giving a voice to Canadians across the nation. 
we heard the sworn testimony of 305 witnesses, all questioned by lawyers and questioned by the commissioners. We have created the largest and most robust record of the COVID experience in the world. <clears throat> and we did this in a climate of fear. Our proceedings began on March 16th, 2023 in Truro, Nova Scotia. That is eight and a half months ago. And this, this leg has led us to forget how much fear the nation was in when we began our proceedings. It's been now long enough without, without us being muzzled with masks, long enough without us being locked in our homes that we're starting to feel a little bit normal. But we would do ourselves a disservice as this report is released if we do not recall what came before and the context and the climate of fear in which the National Citizens Inquiry hearings took place. Beginning in the spring of 2020, we were plunged into a culture of fear, which threw the entire nation into a panic. Many believed that there was a dangerous virus that posed a mortal threat to them and their loved ones. Others saw the country become a police state. There was public discourse about putting unvaccinated Canadians into camps. There was public discourse about criminalizing the refusal to take a medical treatment. We were put under house arrest. We were muzzled like animals with masks. We were viciously divided into camps, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. We were censored. We had our bank accounts frozen. I recently gave two lectures commissioners in which I asked the audience, put up your hand if at the height of the COVID madness, you honestly believed that the army would be going door to door, dragging unvaccinated people out of their homes and forcibly jabbing them. I was asking roughly 850 people and these audiences would be mixed, both vaxxed and unvaxxed. Commissioners, almost every hand went up. <clears throat> the country was under such a cloud of evil and darkness that a large number of Canadians believed that the army would be used to forcefully vaccinate us. We watched in horror as masked police officers, and it is not okay for police officers to be masked against the citizens for which they are to protect and serve. And so for those officers who chose to, to follow orders and wear a mask, I say shame on you. But we watched masked police officers dressed in black to be intimidating, 
forcibly dismantle the peaceful trucker protest. I watched live stream on February 18th, 2022, as a police horse trampled Roberta Paulson. We all watched as our fellow Canadians locked arms to resist and chanted to each other, hold the line. As one by one, the police picked them off and arrested them. And as we saw during some video, at the National Citizens Inquiry at times put the boots to those on the ground. We watched and we saw and we remember. But for all those watching this, I want you to remember that beautiful event because something beautiful happened there. There was an example set for all of us to follow because we watched our fellow Canadians hold the line as long as they could. <clears throat> and they've set for us a beautiful example to follow. And we owe them and we owe the truckers a debt of gratitude because they bought us a period of peace. It was no accident that the following month in March of 2022, the provincial restrictions started to fall and most of the federal restrictions, but for the travel advisory or travel restriction fell. We owe them a debt of gratitude and it was that period of peace that they brought us that allowed the NCI to happen. It was during this lull that we appeared on the screen. <clears throat> now, when we started, there was an absolute climate of fear in the nation. We had witness after witness after witness drop out because they were afraid to testify. Some were afraid of economic consequences. Some were afraid of social consequences. Some were afraid of other consequences. I was afraid to go in front of the camera. We were in such a climate of fear. And commissioners, you will remember when you went through the commissioner selection process and when we were preparing you to be independent and run the hearings, that there were discussions about the fact that there may be repercussions for being a commissioner. And there may yet be repercussions for being a commissioner. It's like we've been in the eye of the hurricane. We were in this storm of this COVID madness. And then the truckers appeared and we've gotten this respite. It's like the hurricane moved over us and we were now in the eye. But we're starting to feel the winds again. We're starting to feel other winds blowing. We know that the hurricane, the storm is coming and that we face uncertain times. But this time, this time it will be different for most of us because some things are certain commissioners. It is certain that we will hold the line as long as we can. It is certain that a large number of Canadians will stand with us and hold the line. Something totally unexpected happened as we toured the land giving a voice to each other we learned that we are not alone. 
We had felt isolated. We felt afraid. We learned that we are not alone. We learned that we can overcome our fear. We are going to feel fear going forward, but we have been there. We have done that, and we understand that we can master and overcome our fear. And we learn that we can no longer sit still. We can no longer sit on our couches and allow Canada to lose its freedoms. We've already lost our freedoms. We now have to work. We need to participate. We need to hold the line to get our freedoms back. And we have come to understand that. So things are now very different. And most importantly, we came to understand that our God is with us. We saw God use the National Citizens Inquiry to bring healing and to bring strength. And we heard his voice calling us to return to him so that he can heal our land. So this time will be very different. And this entire exercise, this entire inquiry should never have happened. It was totally impossible. And time and time and time again, we were on the brink of disaster and collapse. And God stepped in by bringing people forward to make this happen. And we all understand, everyone who even just watched the hearings, understand that we have been allowed to participate in something much greater than ourselves. And to all of you who participated, and to you commissioners, I can honestly say that standing with you through this experience has been one of the most precious and honorable moments of my life. And I am deeply grateful for being able to participate. Now, commissioners, you are going to release your historic report. You have made findings. You've made positive recommendations. The nation is going to be shocked by reading an independent report without a political agenda, a report designed to help us get our freedoms back and become the nation that we want to be. And we don't know what will happen next. We had the truckers write the first chapter of this story and they bought us a period of peace, a period of respite. We had the National Citizens Inquiry write the second chapter where we came together and understood that we're not alone and that we need to stand together. The next chapter is up for those watching to write. It's for those Canadians who understand now that they must hold the line with us. It's, it's up to them to write this, this next chapter. And that's the exciting part because together we will see how we move forward and make Canada a loving, peaceful and free nation once again. So commissioners, on behalf of all Canadians, it is my honor to invite you to release your report. Thank you, Sean, and good morning, everyone. 
My name's Ken Drysdale. I'm the chairman of the commissioners. And we want to start off this morning as I'm going to provide an overview of the inquiry, you know, what was done, how it was done, what the intent was, why the National Citizens Inquiry was required in the first place. And then there will be time for each one of the commissioners to provide their own statement concerning the report. So having said that, we the commissioners of the National Citizens Inquiry wish to express our heartfelt gratitude for the tremendous honor and privilege of serving on this distinguished commission. At this stage, as the inquiry draws to a close, we reflect upon the incredible journey we have taken together and the significant impact our collective efforts have had on the pursuit of truth, justice, and accountability. The commissioners have had a first-hand opportunity to travel Canada from coast to coast and meet some of the most extraordinary and courageous citizens of Canada. These witnesses, although aware of the potential consequences of their testimony, bravely step forward and set an example for the rest of Canadians. Throughout this arduous but profoundly important pro process, we have had the opportunity to work alongside some of the most dedicated professionals, experts, and stakeholders. Their unwavering commitment to the ideals of transparency, fairness, and the pursuit of truth has been an inspiration to us all. We are grateful for their valuable contributions for enriching our understanding of the complex issues at hand. We extend our deepest appreciation to the individuals and organizations who courageously came forward to share their experiences, expertise, and perspectives. Their willingness to engage with the inquiry has been vital in uncovering the facts, shedding light on critical matters, and shaping the recommendations that will guide positive change in the future. We also express our gratitude to the wider public for their unwavering support and unwavering confidence in our work. Their expectations, concerns, and aspirations have served as a constant reminder of the significance of our task and the responsibility entrusted to us. We have endeavored to honor this trust by conducting a thorough, impartial, and diligent inquiry. Why was National Citizens Inquiry required? Canada's federal, provincial, and municipal government responses to COVID-19 were unprecedented. The policy, legal, and health authority interventions into the lives of Canadians, our families, businesses, communities, were and were and to a great extent remain significant. In particular, these interventions have impacted the physical and mental health, civil liberties, fundamental freedoms, jobs, livelihoods, and overall social and economic well-being of nearly all Canadians. Given the enormity of these mandates and the resultant consequences, these circumstances demanded a comprehensive, transparent, and objective national inquiry into the appropriateness and efficacy of these interventions and to determine what lessons can be learned for the future. No government has shown an appetite for a fulsome review of the measures implemented. It is also questionable whether municipal, federal, and provincial governments would or could conduct a fair and unbiased review simply because it is their own actions and responses to COVID-19, which would be under investigation. So a public inquiry 
can be an important mechanism for investigating and addressing significant issues of public concern, but only if that inquiry can be shown to be fair and without bias. Canadians no longer believe that they can rely on their elected representatives or public institutions to provide an in-depth, fair and impartial evaluation of how governments handled and reacted to the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, media institutions whose traditional role was to question the actions of government and inform the people in a fair and unbiased manner, failed to question government actions and served instead to simply repeat government and public health messaging without question. At the same time, those media institutions received significant funding from the federal government, perhaps contributing to, the to their reluctance to hold it or any other government to account. The only solution in these unprecedented times was to form an independent, citizen-led, citizen-funded, and non-biased commission, such as the National Citizens Inquiry, to undertake this historical task. The National Citizens Inquiry is paid for and operated by the citizens of Canada. The National Citizens Inquiry is not aligned with any political party. The National Citizens Inquiry was deliberately structured so that the commissioners were free of influence from any person or source. The National Citizens Inquiry has received no funding from the government. The National Citizens Inquiry has received no large corporate funding. We have received no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. The National Citizens Inquiry is paid for and operated by citizens of Canada. The National Citizens Inquiry is not aligned with any political party, nor does it have a political agenda except to represent the best interests of Canadians. The commissioners played a crucial role in ensuring fairness and minimizing bias. We commissioners were specifically selected from different geographic areas across Canada. The background, training, and expertise of the commissioners is varied and represents different perspectives. The overall objective of the National Citizens Inquiry into COVID-19 response is to provide a comprehensive, impartial, and evidence-based assessment of the actions, decision-making processes, and result that resulted in the Canadian response to COVID-19. The objective was achieved through the following activities examining the effectiveness of the response, identifying strengths and weaknesses, assessing decision-making processes, examining the impact on public health, evaluating communication and transparency, holding accountable and restoring trust, and recommending improvements. To achieve these objectives, the National Citizens Inquiry created a framework to support the appointment of four independent commissioners who undertook a dialogue with Canadians from coast to coast. The dialogue took the form of a series of hearings that took place in eight different cities and included 24 days of witness testimony and over 300 sworn testimonies from a broad spectrum of Canadians. Public hearings were held in the following cities, Truro, Nova Scotia, Toronto, Ontario, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Red Deer, Alberta, Vancouver, British Columbia, Quebec City, Quebec, and Ottawa, Ontario. All eight hearings were recorded in their entirety. Recordings of each day and individual recordings of each witness will be permanently archived 
and available for viewing on the NCI website. That's www.nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. English and French transcripts of the testimony from each hearing will also be permanently archived and available on the NCI website. An exhibit ledger was also developed for materials entered as testimony by the witnesses at the hearings. Witness materials included PowerPoint presentations, reports, curriculum vitae, photos, and media reports. The National Citizens Inquiry established an online application process that openly invited Canadians to offer to testify at one of the hearings. Over 900 members of the public applied to testify. 147 expert witnesses applied or were nominated to provide testimony. Witnesses were advised that they would only be able to testify under oath. They may be subject to vigorous questioning and cross-examination. Their testimony would be subject to strict time limits. Witness testimony was heard from both public lay witnesses and public expert witnesses. Examples of public lay witnesses included those who had disruptions in their lives or education of their children, impaired mental health due to isolation, business loss due to restrictions, job loss due to vaccination mandates, delayed or denied health care, adverse reactions to the COVID-19 genetic vaccines, reputation when or professional discipline or censorship, restricting restrictions of fundamental liberties such as speech, association, or travel, Examples of public expert witnesses include the following, doctors and scientists, lawyers and public servants, economic professors, teachers, risk management professionals, representatives of faith, public policy experts, emergency management professionals, morticians, aviation safety experts, occupational health and safety experts, pharmacists, public health experts, policing experts, journalists and psychologists. It must be clearly understood that although it has always been the intent of the commissioners to include testimony from all sides of the debate, no public authorities responsible for planning, design, or implementation of the pandemic measures elected to take part in the hearings. Testimony was invited from representatives of various levels of governments across Canada, and in order to facilitate schedules, subpoenas were issued and government witnesses were given the option of testifying either in person or on video conference at any of the eight hearing locations or at any other agreeable time. 63 members of government regulators and authorities were subpoenaed to attend and testify. Not a single member of the government appeared at the public hearings to testify. The majority of these representatives did not even take the time to respond to the commission. The report has been prepared and written in plain conversational language so that all Canadians can clearly understand the meaning of the report as it is written. The report is direct and provides meaningful and practical recommendations based on testimony received from the witnesses. Given the enormity and depth of the pandemic measures imposed on Canadians, the commissioners recognize that even a report of this magnitude cannot address every aspect of every Canadian's experience during the pandemic. This report is the commissioner's best attempt to start the country on a path of further investigation, implementation of safeguards, and healing 
that might take more than a generation to achieve. Several steps were involved in the process of preparing the final report. They included a review of the evidence, analysis and findings, assessing legal and ethical standards, drafting the report. We had a great deal of peer review and we've included supporting documentation. The commissioners all reviewed the report and that brings us to where we are now at the public release. We point out to the listeners that the breadth and scope of the inquiry was massive and touched on many aspects of the Canadian response to COVID-19 pandemic. Due to time constraints presented by this type of public hearing, it is impossible to provide a detailed presentation of every aspect of the report that in and of itself is over 600 pages in length, but including transcripts of witness testimonies is somewhere in the range of 6,000 pages in length. For this hearing, the commissioners have decided to present a short overview of their conclusions and recommendations in the report that they felt were the most urgent. This is not to undermine the importance of all of the conclusions and recommendations. They are all important and each may profoundly affect some segment of the Canadian population. That completes my summary of the uh, commission itself. And now I'm going to go on to my own personal commentary as a commissioner. The impact of the recent hearings, along with the extensive witness testimonies, has been profound. For those who participated or even observed a portion of the over 300 recorded testimonies, the experience has left an indelible mark on their lives. Many of these testimonies were not only heartbreaking, but also deeply shocking and at times horrifying. Over the course of 24 days, these witness accounts collectively shed light on the transformation Canada has undergone in response to the pandemic. The widespread acceptance of stringent government lockdowns, which would have previously been deemed inconceivable, represents a remarkable shift within a mere three years. The testimonies provided irrefutable evidence that an unprecedented assault had been waged against the citizens of Canada. Not since World War II has the nation experienced such a devastating attack on its people. Our investigation into the pandemic measures unveiled a troubling mix of hubris, ignorance, arrogance, fear, and a shocking disregard for fundamental principles of human rights, medical ethics, and our long-standing democratic and legal foundations. This atmosphere persists to this day, as demonstrated by the refusal of the government to undertake any kind of real investigation of what happened, and the refusal of the government representatives to participate in the National Citizens' Inquiry's investigation. Numerous public and private institutions faltered, allowing government intervention to infiltrate the very core of our nation. Institutions that have historically safeguarded the rights of Canadians were compromised, often becoming indistinguishable from the government itself. The impact of these pandemic measures implemented by various governmental and non-governmental agencies has inflicted deep wounds upon Canadians and Canadian society. These agencies wielded unprecedented powers over individual rights during the pandemic, resulting in a profound damage to the fabric of our society and our nation.
As we gather here today, some government agencies continue to propagate misinformation, pushing for more vaccine boosters and renewed masking mandates, despite clear evidence of their ineffectiveness and potential harm. The government and other entities involved in these pandemic measures may wish for Canadians to move on and forget, but we must not allow these draconian measures to become the new normal in the future. Our nation is in dire need of healing. Before embarking on the essential journey of personal and collective healing, we must confront the root causes of this damage and take preventative and punitive measures against those who have imposed these tyrannical measures upon our nation. Failing to do so risks condemning future generations to unimaginable tyranny. We acknowledge that public apathy towards the erosion of fundamental institutions and beliefs has been a factor that enabled the imposition of these tyrannical measures. Special attention must be paid to the sinister role that the public and private broadcasters played in terrorizing the public and then merely acting as a mouthpiece of the government. And they relentlessly pounded Canadians with 24-7 propaganda without question. We have prepared specific recommendations concerning these institutions. But the wholesale abandonment of long-held fundamental beliefs and even codified law was not the sole purview of the media. Many public and private bodies, such as schools, medical providers, regulators, unions, justice and policing, all failed Canadians. These institutions and individuals must be held to account. Today, as the commissioners of the National Citizens Inquiry, we address you with a message of empowerment. We urge you to recognize the immense power each one of you holds to shape the destiny of our great nation. The time has come to embrace our collective responsibility and take control of our government. Today, we can create a society that we can be proud to pass on to future generations. We Canadians are collectively awakening to the realization of the government's magnitude of acts against us. And we must ensure that the horrors of the past three years are never repeated. It is up to each of us, not our representatives, not our political parties or others. It is up to each of us, each and every one of us as Canadians. Canada is a land of vast potential blessed with abundant resources, diverse cultures, and a tradition of compassion and inclusivity. Yet we stand at a critical juncture where both challenges and opportunities abound. Our lips may be bloodied and we may be shamed, but we cannot turn away from the horrors of the past three years. We cannot allow this to happen to our children and grandchildren. The strength of a nation lies within the determination and resolve of its citizens. And we encourage you to reflect on the society we desire for our children. One characterized by real justice, equality, sustainability, and opportunities for all. This vision can only be realized when we actively engage in the democratic process that governs our land. 
the power to effect change rests firmly in our hands. Now is the time to demand transparency and accountability from our elected officials, to participate actively in the public discourse and to hold our government to the highest of standards. We must remain vigilant to ensure our voices are heard and our concerns addressed. Let us not underestimate the influence we possess as engaged and informed citizens. To create a society we all dream of, we must come together across all divides, geographical, social, and ideological. We must embrace dialogue, respect diverse perspectives, and find common ground in our shared aspirations for the future. By fostering unity and understanding, we can overcome the challenges that lie before us and build a brighter future. We must reject and turn away from the hateful ideologies and propaganda used to divide and control us. Our responsibility extends beyond governments alone. We must also critically examine our individual actions and how we inadvertently empowered the government to achieve these horrors. Let us strive to be responsible stewards of our country, vigilantly protecting democratic practices that preserve our God-given rights and freedoms. Let us foster compassion, empathy, inclusivity of thought, and support for those most vulnerable among us. Let us protect the rights and freedoms of everyone. Let the words never again be heard on every lip. In the face of adversity, it is our duty as citizens to remain hopeful, resilient, and committed to the principles that define us as a country. We have a rich history of progress and innovation, and we can draw upon this legacy to shape a future that reflects our values and aspirations. Together, let us embrace the responsibility that comes with citizenship. Let us engage in meaningful dialogue, hold our governments accountable, and actively participate in the democratic process. Let us be the change we used to see in our society. With determination and unity, we can create a Canada we are truly proud to pass on to our children, a nation that embodies justice, equality, and boundless opportunities for all. It cannot be business as usual. The crimes perpetrated on every single one of us must be addressed, and the perpetrators at all levels need to be held to account for their actions. I wish to close my comment with this. When people have asked me about the future, now that the final report of the National Citizens Inquiry is complete, I often find myself reflecting on both hope and skepticism. I hope that our authorities will truly embrace this report, initiating the long and necessary process of implementation and healing. However, my journey through these inquiries has left me with a sobering realization, a dwindling faith in our public institutions to consistently do what is right. But to those who inquire, I say this, the report is not just a document. It is a testament to history. It is a chronicle of events presented to the best of our abilities, free from bias. We accompany it with critical recommendations for change. Yet in the end, 
It is not the report itself that wields the power of transformation. It is the people of Canada who hold that potential. This report, along with its recommendations, serves as a foundation, a framework for changes that are urgently needed. However, it remains just a tool lying dormant on a shelf or in a toolbox until people, and in this case, thousands or millions of people, choose to wield that tool. It is in the hands that grasp this tool and the voices that rally around it and the collective will of the people that can truly change the world. So in closing, let this report not become a relic of history, but a catalyst for the future. Let it be a call to action a symbol of unity and a source of inspiration. It's now in the hands of the citizens of Canada to demand change, to turn the pages of history and to shape a better tomorrow. The report is the beginning, but the change, the healing and the transformation, that is a journey that all of us Canadians must embark on together. Thank you very much. Dear fellow Canadian, to this formidable journey of the Commission, I would like, I've learned a lot, and there's a few lessons that I've learned that I'd like to share with you today. I'll start with an ode to truth and integrity. Collectively, we've been playing too much, paying too much attention, difference to our material comfort and not enough to truth. Accommodation with add truths, lies, by omission, blatant lies, or complacent silence has created a culture in which the institution have gradually rotted from within. The COVID-19 crisis has revealed that our Western society are on the slippery slope towards totalitarianism. That cannot happen without the consent and the active participation of the government. We are all responsible for what's happening one way or another. Restoring a vibrant culture of accountability thriving on truth is the only way to rebuild the most important asset of a prosper and benevolent society, trust. Trust cannot be demanded. It has to be earned by speaking truth and acting with integrity. One of the great, gravest danger to democracy is the tyranny of the majority that has forgotten the primordial importance of truth and liberty grounded in the individual responsibility that cannot and should not be outsourced to the administrative state. Unless a true safe space is created for the flourishment of new ideas freely challenged by rigorous scientific debates, society will eventually crumble in obsolescence. When society is in a constant state of crisis, one has to question the competence and or the motive of the ruling class, including the administrative states. We have to protect as sacred the path and the institution that have been used for centuries in the rigorous scientific process. Money and institution should not facilitate this process, should facilitate this process, not subjugate it. 
people working as an elected official in the administrative state should be should not end up being the master of our destiny, but rather the civil servant of the institution at the service of the people. We are learning the hard way that institution which become dysfunctional can and will fail us when we need them the most. As engaged citizen, we must embark and take part in a major reform of our institution and not, not leave it to the elusive others. Let's not be discouraged by the magnitude of the task at hand. We owe it all to our children and grandchildren. Is the administrative state benevolent or guilty of malfeasance? As the famous late Nobel laureate physicist Stephen Hawking judiciously said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it's the illusion of knowledge. In Canada, the administrative state used the illusion of knowledge to maintain its power. This was evident throughout the three-year COVID-19 experience when bureaucrats and administrators alike were portrayed as all-powerful. However, this is only an image accomplished through an elaborate and inextricably intertwined web of deceit. Meanwhile, politicians were more than happy to impose popular but ill-advised half-baked health measure, justifying these emergency policy as well-intended measure to protect public health. Sadly, the majority of people succumbed to the measure out of fear, lack of unbiased and objective information, and questionable trust in long-standing institutions. In this context, <clears throat> as long as people perceive benefit from the government narrative, everything will be done to protect the illusion of the effectiveness of the ill-advised health measure. But as we witness it, the administrative state, in order to achieve this end, rely on poor modeling and statistics full of emission, whilst ignoring scientific knowledge and understanding. The administrator also dismissed the wisdom of true experts who have credential considerably above the pretended expertise of technocrats who systematically censor any dissenting voice <clears throat> who threaten their authority. This is best illustrated by numerous accounts of the ignorance of epidemiology, their ineffective and unfitting non-pharmaceutical intervention, their willful ignorance of state-of-the-art medical practice, and last but not least, their superficial knowledge of the intricacy of the immune system. The only way out of this conundrum is through our constitutionally protected freedom of speech, wherein widely held beliefs, thoughts, and opinions are respected, and likewise, conversation, debates, and dissenting voice are heard. This should be particularly true in the scientific and medical professions. We know the very essence of society is human interaction and embedded therein relationships. As human society thrive on narrative 
that present distorted view of reality and define culture according to unwritten rules, new narrative need to emerge. These are particularly critical when society face a major crisis. Like the pandemic, sometimes low resolution representation of reality need to be updated and subsequently redefined by rigorous debate to orient better decision making and implement better solution to vexing problem going forward. This report is an attempt to craft a more balanced and objective narrative based on the hundreds of testimony heard during the 24 days of hearing across Canada. Why? Because Canadians deserve to hear the concern raised and to forge their own informed opinions regarding the health crisis we have just faced, including the appropriateness of the mitigation measure used by government authority. It will be up to the reader to determine for themselves whether this new narrative is a more comprehensive representation of reality than the messaging delivered by the government and the mainstream media during the past three years. This report examined the health, civil, economic, and societal issue resulting from the COVID-19 response. The report also makes specific recommendations to improve the management of any future health crisis. Our report focuses on answering questions that are in the realm of scientific and forensic investigation. What happened? How did it happen? And although the why deserve attention too, the commissioner have determined that it is beyond the scope of this investigation. It is for this reason that the commissioner have agreed to abide by the witnesses' testimony to the best of their ability, seeking the truth. These are the truths we have sought throughout the hearings. Moreover, by engaging in this cross-country experience, we can come together as a nation, restoring the very principle and freedoms that has defined Canada since 1867. Recommendations. Considering the critical reliance of our modern society on science and technology, there is a need to distinguish knowledge derived from rigorous scientific method, from beliefs often influenced by ideology and propaganda. To help distinguish between these two, we recommend the following. Number one, basic training in epistemology and critical thinking should be incorporated in both humanity and scientific or technological education curricula. Two, experts who participate in public forums should undergo strict scrutiny based on the following three fundamental criteria. First, demonstrated cutting edge knowledge and expertise as evidenced by their involvement in past or ongoing scientific research, providing proof of their understanding of the subject matter under discussion. Secondly, lack of conflict of interest. And finally, willingness to engage in evidence-based public debate with other experts who may all different opinions 
using rhetoric that avoids ad hominem attacks, appeals to authority, or invoking the so-called scientific consensus. In closing, implementing any of our recommendations will be an uphill battle. Even though people sharing the view of this report are still a minority, we are witnessing a steady growth in the number of people that are raising their awareness level. And once we know, we can no longer unknow. And the truth will set us free. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for taking the time to hear from each of us this morning. As a lawyer, I understand the fundamental importance of always hearing both sides of every story before reaching judgment, of being open-minded and hearing each side's arguments and perspectives before making a decision. I joined the NCI because I wanted to understand what we had done as a nation and why. I wanted to hear the reasons and justifications for the myriad of rules that were imposed on us almost overnight. The lockdown orders, the school closures, the mask mandates, the vaccine passports, the quarantine hotels. And I wanted to square those with the impacts that they had on our society, on us. As a civilized nation, I believe that we should face what we have done and ask, did we do the right thing? Were there unexpected consequences? Was it worth it? When I first agreed to be a commissioner, I intended to undertake an impartial review of both sides of the story of the measures that were enacted in Canada in response to the pandemic. I expected that we would hear from a full spectrum of Canadians, including government representatives, experts, and everyday Canadians. Unfortunately, we only heard one side of the story because not one single government representative came to testify before us. Not one decision maker came to justify what was done. At the same time, we heard from Canadians across the country in both official languages about their experiences, and it wasn't good. Without getting the other side of the story, the justification from our leaders and decision makers, what were we to conclude? Readers of our report need to keep this in mind. We gathered evidence from hundreds of Canadians and dozens of non-government experts. The evidence we have all points one way, to a significant breakdown of Canadian institutions, the division of our society, neighbors pitted against neighbors, families torn apart, individuals suffering grievous injuries which their own doctors won't acknowledge, feelings of isolation, depression, suicides, pain, and grief. And against this was contrasted the official statements from our governments during this time, promising to keep us safe 
If only we keep following their directives. This message echoed over and over again by the media. And as a lawyer, I paid particular attention to the testimony about our Canadian legal system. The Canadian Constitution and the Charter of Rights are something I have always been proud of as a Canadian. Fundamentally, our Charter of Rights enshrines the mutual respect that we hold for each other. Respect for one another, even when we have differences of opinion, is reflected in our most supreme law. By guaranteeing that the government cannot tread on my neighbor's rights, we guarantee our own. This is never more important than when things are difficult in times of fear and uncertainty. Our report contains recommendations to renew and rebuild confidence in Canada's courts, to limit the delegation of power to unelected institutions, and to strengthen the accountability of our institutions to the public. Canadians relied on their institutions to serve them during the pandemic. Critical institutions failed us and public policy suffered, people suffered. It is my hope that the recommendations we have made are widely distributed for discussion and consideration. Many of our recommendations call for more inquiry and investigation. As Canadians, we should not be afraid to ask the questions that matter most, and we should not be afraid to hear the answers. It is my personal belief that this is the only path forward to healing our nation. And lastly, I would like to say that it has been my incredible honor to serve as a commissioner on the National Citizens Inquiry. Seeing the strength of ordinary Canadians, even in the darkest times of their lives, gave me renewed hope. I want to acknowledge the bravery of every witness who stood up and testified publicly, live streaming on the internet for everyone to see facing their fears of shame and scorn from friends, family, and society. It was my honor to bear witness to your stories. And I know that there are many, many Canadians who have found comfort, solace, and hope in hearing your stories and discovering that they weren't alone. This was an experience unlike any other in my lifetime, and I'm humbled and grateful to have played my small part in something so much bigger and greater than myself. Thank you. Good morning, my name is Janice Kaikonen. I must say for me, the National Citizens Inquiry has been quite the journey. At the beginning, my focal point and priority for becoming a commissioner was to ensure as complete an analysis as possible into the impacts of the COVID-19 response on the diverse aspects of our Canadian society. In particular, this was important for our children, our faith, our God-given entrenched freedoms, and the democratic principles that have contributed to the blessing on this great nation from sea to sea to sea. More specifically, Examine how the government's response to COVID affected vulnerable and marginalized populations and communities. After listening to the testimony of 305 Canadians, recognize 
accommodate the hundreds of other voices willing to testify, I realized the picture being painted was much deeper, all more devastating and divisive, and the response from our public institutions on every Canadian far more destructive. It soon became, became clear that Canada was not the society I had known during my lifetime. I was privileged to be born into a Canada that made sense in both mind and soul. But now, having been exposed to the testimony of hundreds of Canadians with respect to the government response to COVID, I have been introduced to a new sinister dimension, one that no longer reflects the values, beliefs, and freedoms of my generation. It is within this backdrop that the conclusions and recommendations made by the commissioners are so critical. The juncture Canadians face in moving forward must include the exposing the forces that willingly subscribed to destroying our beloved country from the inside out. Indeed, what we witnessed during COVID was so contrary to Western ideals. Sadly, the institutional arm unleashing what took place in 2020 has not stopped forwarding their lawless agenda. Even though those responsible are now being exposed, government overreach and intrusion are destroying the lives of ordinary Canadians became the unspoken mantra. Under the surface of what we refer to as governing institutions, this mindset to oppress the masses, to destroy the spirit that has made Canada the envy of the world continues. One example that stands out was the decision to callously declare some businesses non-essential, even when it was a lifeline for the people involved in that particular endeavor. Some of those mom and pop businesses deemed non-essential and thus forced to close during COVID are still receiving hefty tax assessments that reflect the tax assessments pre-COVID. Try telling any of the tax collecting institutions in this country there was no income during the COVID years. What about the business owners who lost everything because an unelected official with the stroke of a pen deemed one's life work unnecessary? The entrepreneurial spirit, the backbone of this country, sanctioned by the stroke of a pen, while other corporate entities and government money makers open for business. Businesses testified of the abuses they faced like for believing differently or taking a different stance. Many families are still divided. Even the most common Common sense thinking was discarded for health mandates. One example is the mandate to wear a mask into a restaurant with the ability to take it off once seated, as if COVID was prevented from joining us at the table. Or our children forced to wear the same mask all day, even though it was obvious, even to the most needed a clean mask. Unions vacated their legal responsibility and duties to their members. post-secondary institutions in Ontario, publicly funded institutions, including schools and the judiciary, closed. Ordinary citizens had no avenue open to them to obtain justice. And the negative effects on students are still being felt today. After being forced to sit in a room in front of a screen, isolated from their friends and social networks for hours on end, 
It's no wonder the unlearned mentality has become so entrenched within the KJK-12 system. And then there are the many whose young lives had become so disrupted that they went to a place from which there was no return. My question, how many suicides are too many before we as a populace say enough? As well, curfews were imposed on the citizenry where one could suffer the wrath of the state for venturing outdoors after 8 p.m. Ontario and Quebec set up provincial roadblocks. The Maritime Province in particular imposed the strictest, most contradictory rules, violating the very essence of mobility rights established in the Canadian Charter of Freedoms, Rights and Freedoms. Government permission needed to be granted before a citizen from away could enter these provinces, even when these same citizens own property therein. For the first time ever, Canada needed papers, Canadians needed papers to travel within their own country. Our cell phones were tracked by nameless health authorities for no apparent reason, as if the good citizens of this country were hardened criminals. Canadians across this country mocked, publicly shamed, and called unacceptable and disparaging names by the Prime Minister, by policing authorities, by faceless and nameless bureaucrats, by the media funded with Canadians' tax dollars, and governance institutions that are legislated to uphold the law. Individual rights were stomped on. Canadians from all walks of life were denied the right to life, liberty, and security. We witnessed shameful abuses against ordinary citizens. The police forces during the by police forces during the freedom convoy. The Coots men held in jail for over 600 days without justice being served. Peaceful demonstrators arrested for exercising their constitutional rights and freedoms. Church services disrupted by police and ministers of the good news gospel arrested. And most egregious to my own heart, the RCMP using track dogs to hunt down church goers for holding church in the wilderness. Where were these police officers' conscience? And where was the legal right to refuse work that violated one's conscience and convictions in these real life examples? At the same time, doctors, nurses, and surgeons were publicly penalized, with many being ostracized by colleges and physicians, losing their ability to practice medicine for publicly standing up for their patients' health and well being. Ironically, they were forced to violate their own sense of right and wrong. When was there ever a time in the history of Canada wherein religious and medical exemptions were not permitted? And EI, an employment insurance prog program fully funded by employers and employees, and not by government, was permitted to justify refusal of claims from applicants who choose not to take the COVID shot, labeling their actions as misconduct. As if this isn't enough, Family members could not see their loved ones in their last moments of life in hospitals and long-term seniors facilities. That these people were left to die alone and the med administrators and medical practitioners responsible in these health institutions believe this to be acceptable is deplorable. I could go on and on about the atrocities that we experienced in Canada during COVID, but let me say this. At the end of the day, Canadians were conned into believing governments could do no harm. Newspapers and mainstream media were handsomely paid from our hard-earned tax dollars to promote the government narrative. 
which was essentially propaganda and lies to make us comply to contradictory mandates that violated our constitutional rights and freedoms. But now, because of the National Citizens Inquiry, we know differently. We have heard from the experts, the scholars, the professionals, the many hardworking Canadians who bravely took the stand under oath to expose the corruption and deception that we were all subjected to. Each and every one of the witnesses shared their story so that the people of this country could once again be proud of the heritage and constitutional, uh, constitutional ideals that can be only found in Western democracies. And each witness in their own way bravely stood in the gap against the oppression and destruction that those in high places had destined for the populace. The Bible calls this moral ineptitude as spiritual wickedness in high places. The question though, is where do we go from here? Do we now allow the health authorities to order us to wear masks again, as the hospitals and long-term seniors facilities have started to do in Ontario? Or do we as a nation join hands together as neighbors caring about one another, who will not stand idly by and watch our public institutions attempt once again to destroy the very democratic principles and ideals that have made Canada the greatest nation among the nations. We are a nation founded upon the supremacy of God and rule of law. We are a country whose constitution recognizes citizens' rights and freedoms and authorizes these same citizens to stand in righteousness when publicly funded institutions attempt to trample over their rights as free men and free women. We have freedom of expression, for example, which is the cornerstone of a functioning democratic society. We enjoy the presumption of innocence. We have the right to believe according to one's conscience as a free people rejoicing in life, not just the mechanics of life. It is obvious that Canada stands at a crossroads, but the direction forward is dependent upon each and every one of us as proud Canadians, standing ununified with the fervent belief that Canada is still worth fighting for. That while we may have been duped for a season, the light that has now shone on the failed experiment that governments leveled against the populace, you and I. The time has come for questions to be asked and answered with accountability and justice as the outcome. My highest desire for this out exercise is to assure renewed hopefulness for our society going forward, to eliminate the way for the Canada that we should be, a shining star economically, intellectually, and spiritually. We as a nation have such vast potential to move forward confidently and positively rather than backward fearfully and negatively. And we can rely on the base that established this nation, a Christian foundation, wherein every soul understands that loving God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and loving one another are still the greatest commandments. In closing, the shortest verse in the Bible states, Jesus wept. But like the Israelites who sat by the rivers of Babylon, weeping about the freedoms they once knew, Canadians have wept long enough. Now is the time to arise, stand, and ensure the conversation that started with the Freedom Convoy and the National Citizens Inquiry continues until justice and good governance in this country called Canada is restored. My congratulations and thanks to every single witness, to every single supporter, 
and to every single donor who made this historic moment come to fruition. God bless you all and God bless Canada. Thank you. Honorable commissioners and fellow Canadians, during the COVID crisis years, Canadians watched as the institutions they thought would protect their freedoms and their prosperity instead perpetrated hysterical fear, unprecedented loss of freedoms, and economic destruction. Regard, reckless disregard, dishonesty, and abuse by authorities who exploited fear they created has destroyed public trust. After previous lesser crises, public hearings would have been ordered across Canada to learn lessons and find truth. But Canadian governments have chosen not to commission inquiries with broad public input, and so a courageous group of devoted Canadians has chosen to fill the vacuum of leadership and against a wall of government and legacy media hostility, take up the cause of truth. Canadians often at personal cost told their stories and shared their experience with the commissioners. Do your own verification of the truth, your own audit, by going to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca and picking out three testimonies. Your life will be changed. And you will know whether the commissioner's report touches your truth and the truth of fellow Canadians the way your truth and the truth of your fellow Canadians touched the commissioners. The National Citizens Inquiry is funded and staffed by volunteers who believe in a better Canada. The gratitude of Canadians belongs to them and it belongs especially to the commissioners. Ken Drysdale, Bernard Massey, Janice Kaikonen, and Heather Di Gregorio, who dedicated their skill and time and immersed their souls in the crucible of suffering from government overreach and cruelty, which was the common experience of many Canadians. The haughty attitude of absent officials who refused invitations to testify leaves many wondering what these nabobs of national health and their political overlords have to hide. The record of their refusal to speak with their fellow Canadians stands, and truth and trust are the losers. The National Citizens' Inquiry was always about truth, but it could not be about reconciliation, because for reconciliation, there must be accountability, and the nabobs of national health and their political bosses remain virtually unaccountable. But the pendulum of public opinion is swinging, their impunity is fading. I am a longtime lawyer and sometime leader of the opposition in my home province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Politics teaches the discipline of messaging. If you get on an elevator and someone asks you, what did the National Citizens Inquiry say? 
you have a brief time between when the doors open, the person gets on, uh, and then they, they open and the person gets off to give your elevator speech. So as administrator of the National Citizens Inquiry, here's mine. At least three facts about the COVID-19 vaccines are beyond dispute. They are facts beyond dispute because authorities like Health Canada admit these facts. The first fact beyond dispute is that Health Canada did not determine that the vaccines were safe and effective when they approved the vaccines. This language is nowhere in the approving order or regulation. It does, however, appear on the Health Canada website, which falsely claims that the vaccines were proven safe and effective and of good quality. The expression safe and effective is a marketing slogan and a deceptive one. A non-deceptive slogan would be neither safe nor effective. The second fact beyond dispute is that the process by which the vaccines were made for approval was a different process from the process by which they were made for mass marketing. In this domain of health regulation, the process is the product. And there has been a bait and switch perpetrated on the public by which the public received a different product, a product which was neither safe nor effective from the product which was approved. The third fact beyond dispute is that vaccines are adulterated, the COVID-19 vaccines, by the presence of foreign DNA fragments and a sequence from a monkey virus called SV40, suspected of causing cancer. Adulterated products are neither safe nor effective. Health Canada does not deny these shocking facts. What should be done about these facts is a matter of opinion, but the facts are not in dispute. Do vaccines with such a deceptive history sound safe and effective to you? If you knew these facts, would you have consented to be injected? Or do they sound neither safe nor effective? The commissioners are in no doubt about what should be done. The vaccines should be pulled from the market immediately. Many doctors, scientists, and politicians have bet their careers and credibility on the safe and effective vaccine mantra. So don't expect the vaccines to be withdrawn easily or soon. But they are neither safe nor effective, and withdrawn they must be. Governments could not have perpetrated a years-long institutionalized practice of deceptive vaccine marketing, but for the complicity and cancel culture of the legacy press. The commissioners have determined that the CBC has betrayed public trust and must be radically reconstructed. And federal liberal government subsidies to the press, which buy their loyalty to the regime, must be terminated. No democracy can long survive without a free press. 
and the commissioners recommend criminal prosecutions. As a lawyer, I believe the more lawsuits, both civil and criminal, the more accountability and the greater the chance for reconciliation over the cruelties, abuses, and deaths caused by governmental response to the COVID crisis. But accountability first. They may have the clock for now, but Canadians have the time. Mr. Chairman, this concludes the resumed hearing portion of the formal proceedings, and we will now open for questions. Thank you. So our first question comes from Tamara Ugolini of Rebel News. Thank you so much. Uh, very happy to be here, and thanks for your comprehensive hearing today. Um, repeatedly, I hear that the health officials and those responsible for imposing these mandates, restrictions, and purported public health measures refuse to partake in such an inquiry, and we know that the Liberals have voted against conducting this kind of inquiry. If Health Canada, for instance, continues to dig their heels in on the safety and efficacy of the novel injections and the government refuses to take accountability actions against the measures that they themselves impose, then what does accountability and what does it look like moving forward? You know, we can we can have these hearings, we can host this comprehensive inquiry, you can publish this robust hundreds, even thousands of pages report, but if no one from the government is listening or paying attention, then what does this tangibly look like moving forward? And if there are criminal prosecutions, I thought that was very strongly worded and in my opinion, strongly needed, but what kind of charges would this entail? And just overall, what does this look like moving forward if those people and institutions responsible continue to ignore all of this? Thank you, Tamara. You've got a lot of questions in there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, first off, I don't, as I said during my uh, comment, commentary, the public should consider this report to be like you would a box of tools sitting on the workbench. If someone doesn't open the box of tools and do something with it, nothing will happen. You'll not build a house or you'll not fix a grandma's rocking chair. Canadian people have to pick this up and do something. You know, we just went through an election here in Manitoba provincial election and the the numbers of people that voted and didn't vote was incredible. You know, we had a, another provincial election in 2019. And would you believe that the election we had last week, it was exactly the same number of voters. It was 55% of eligible voters voted and 55% voted in 2019. And they voted just this past October. So how is it that Canadians, having gone through what they went through, it didn't inspire them to vote and to make their voices heard. So your question is an excellent one. And what, what will happen? Well, we expect that the government will try to ignore this just like they ignored our invitations to come and testify. But it's up to Canadians. And until Canadians read the report or watch the videos, they will not understand the depth, the profound depth of the horrors that were placed upon Canadians. And, and, and I know that Canadians, if they understand that, because right now a lot of Canadians are in the bubble of the media's propaganda still, 
But until they start, when Canadians start to wake up, you know, there's an old expression. I don't know whether it's true or not, but they woke up a sleeping giant and filled them with a terrible rage. And in my opinion, I am hoping for that, that the Canadian people will wake up and be in a very bad mood and hold their governments into account. Heather, do you uh, want to add to that? Thanks. Well, I'm in agreement with your comments, Ken. Um, and I think we got a, a similar question when we released our our, uh, our interim report earlier. And really, the, you know, at the base of this is it's we've done what we can to get this report uh, recorded, published uh, with recommendations. And now it's up to Canadians uh, to take it forward. And every person bears personal responsibility in how they're going to do that. Bernard, have you got something to add? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement with your comments, both Heather and, and Ken. Um, what can I add more? I, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, the situation, the culture we've been sort of embedded in for decades is not going to flip on a coin. It's going to take times and it's not because it's moving slowly that it's not going to eventually get the right momentum to turn things around the way i look at it is that it's not going to take the majority of people to wake up to make a difference you just need a critical mass of people to move things around what are those number hard to tell five, 10%, but the moment you gather the right people that are engaged and are going to make things happen, I think eventually we will move and it has to move at different front. It has to move at the level, political front, provincial, federal, and court, and so on. But eventually it will flip. Will it flip as quickly as we would want it to flip in Canada? Uh, my guess is that it's gonna. The first impact will come from abroad, in 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 a society that have been more, I would say, used to fight this kind of situation. And the moment that we see the their victories in the, on different fronts, it will actually fuel a lot of uh, conversation and a lot of uh, movement to make things happen. Janice, you want to add to that? Good morning, Tamara. That was a host of questions that were very good and very insightful. I think for me, it's uh, loving one another at, at the very base of our society, our social fabric, and caring for one another. That's what we are to do. And when we start caring for other people, there is nothing that government can do. When we stand with other people who are being shamed publicly or abused or trodden over, then things start to change because it's not just the one person anymore. It's each and every one of us saying, we've had enough, this is not going to happen again. And we're going to stand with people who say no, who have that strength. And as each and every one of us takes, takes that moment and, and gains that strength, we start to realize, and we should have realized from the Freedom Convoy, we're not alone. 
there are thousands upon thousands of other people out there who feel the same way. So like Jesus said, love one another. Let's start loving one another. Let's start standing in unity against the forces of evil that want to take us out and say that this country, again, like I said earlier, is still worth fighting for. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Janice. If I do, I have time for just a quick follow up. Sure. Thank you. So, what role do you think the mainstream media plays in holding this kind of accountability? You know, is it, is it a grassroots swelling and movement of Canadians, as we saw with the trucker convoy, or if there was a, a change or some sort of um, policy imposed on the mainstream media, or a dismantling or disbanding altogether? Would that facilitate? this sort of action faster than grassroots Canadians? You know, we have a tendency now in our modern society to always think that we're going to do something with regulation. The government's going to do this and the government's going to do that. Or we're going to go and stand in front of a school board meeting or something else waving a sign. You know, the time to try to make change isn't when the horse is out of the barn. It's at the electoral level. You know, we've been captured by the party system. We've been captured by this idea that we're dependent on the government to enforce a regulation or something where the citizens of this country hold the ultimate power. Turn off the switch on your TV. Don't watch the shows that don't support what you do. Don't read those newspapers. Do not buy those magazines. Canadians have that power. And Canadians also have the power to rest back control of their government and break the unholy alliance that has developed, not just between the candidates and the party leaders, and we could talk about that in detail, but also between the lobbyists and the party leaders. Because right now in Canada, the parties know that you're going to vote for the party. And you know what? They're not a whole lot different. And until we break that by saying... I am no longer voting for the green party or the blue party or the yellow party or the purple party. I am voting for the person. And if that person doesn't represent me, the next election cycle, when they're asking for my vote again, I will not vote for them regardless of what armband color they're, reading, they're wearing. And when we take, when we grasp that, when Canadians can grasp that and start to act on it, we don't need government regulation. We'll put the media in their place by not watching their propaganda. We'll stop the employers from doing, imposing mandates and things on us by stopping working for them or stopping doing business with them. Let's not wait for the government. Let's take action. We've waited long enough. Janice, do you want to add to that? I just want to say that there were a lot of mom and pop shops that were destroyed during the three years of COVID. I think if we support those mom and shop pop shops, I think we can start to turn this around. We don't need to support the corporate who was given the authorization and approval to stay open during COVID. We can support the small stores. It may cost us a little bit more, granted. But at the same time, at the end of the day, we will have a better economy, we will have a better social fabric, and we will have people at the community level who want to help one another. And I think that that's where this, this whole inquiry has to go, is that we take responsibility for our own actions, 
and we pray about the ones that we can't change so that the Lord can step in and he can intervene on those bigger picture things. But we can certainly help and do things at our local level to just help our neighbor, love our neighbor. Bernard, do you, would you like to add to that? Yeah, well, what can I say? <clears throat> I fully agree with what you said, Tim, that um, we are too passive with respect to the institution. It really has to start with individual responsibility. So we have to build activities and interaction with our families and neighbor that are ground on, on that are based on our shared values, and not be too, I would say. Um, sensitive to short-term gains. I mean, so as Janice pointed out, it might cost us a little more to buy to the to local merchant and stuff, but do we want to build a strong community that will be, it'll be, will be more resilient to drastic change that can be opposed from above, from highly centralized, would it be business, government, or corporation? The way you balance that is by rebuilding the power at the level of the local community where the action is taking place and do it in a way that is beneficial for people around you. Heather, would you like to add to that? Sure, I think I would just add, um, I mean, it was clear throughout the entire inquiry that the media's role was really important um, in terms of uh, reflecting what the government was saying and and really not hearing it, hearing the media holding government to account. Um, I think one of the most important testimonies uh, in the entire inquiry is that of Rodney Palmer. And I would actually encourage every Canadian to search out his testimony specifically to the inquiry and to watch it. It was particularly eye-opening to me. Um, I think learning about the Trusted News Initiative and these types of organizations uh, that appear to have influence over the media that Canadians are consuming is vital to understanding just exactly uh, where we're at and what has happened. Just one last point on that. One other uh, testimony that I would point people to is Marianne Kloak. She actually describes in her testimony exactly what happened to her as an investigative reporter at CBC and how her stories were crushed. And, uh, and I think that's very, uh, very poignant. You know, she was there for 34 years, uh, considered an expert investigator, and uh, she left their employee after that, in any case. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Our next uh, question comes from a member of the public, Jason Dahl. Hi, Jay Dahl. I'm with uh, Super Spreaders on YouTube and Rumble and on Twitter. And uh, I'm the NCI social media ambassador. I attended the Ottawa hearings. Congratulations to you all on finishing uh, the report. I assume you're all going for a beer right after. Um, the, my question is to do with uh, your recommendations uh, moving forward. Do, do the recommendations, are they sorted with a primacy? Do, do, does each of you feel or does the commission feel that there's an order to what needs to happen or if you could see all your recommendations done is there a place to start in specific or are they just a batch of recommendations well um excellent question <laughs> it was certainly a discussion we had over and over and over again 
what we did was is there's over 400 recommendations in the report specific recommendations they're grouped under different subject areas like um, uh, finances civil law society those kinds of things and they're all extremely important and depending on what your experience was either as a citizen during the pandemic or what you're experiencing now uh, one, one thing might be more important to you as a citizen than the other but i believe that all of the recommendations we have need to uh, be considered and incorporated there again there's some very significant ones uh, and they deal with um just about every element of society from private business to media companies to the medicine system to uh, uh, regulatory agencies um, it's very comprehensive and and we so but to answer directly your question we did not um, prioritize them just because it was very difficult you know one one of us is a, a is a specialist in one area the other one's a specialist in the other area and in each of those specialty areas darn it we wanted our our thing to be the primacy but uh, in any case bernard do you want to add to that yeah this has been a very uh, intense struggle to, to try to define the top five ten recommendation I think in the end, you know, I mean, because it's so pervasive across all areas of society, it's very difficult to to do justice to all of the different areas that are that have been impacted by the uh, COVID crisis. So we really had to uh, itemize in every area. And at the moment you start doing that, of course, the, the list is pretty long and it, it will apply differently depending on the institution. One of the things which I think underpins everything and has been asked by Tamara and in, her, in her previous question is that at the end of the day, when you interact with people, you can only do it in a productive way if the trust is fairly high, if you trust one another. And this is based on transaction where people are provided with the kind of goods or service or, or, uh, or compensation that are aligned with the, to the best of their knowledge on truth. You can trust people. And the moment you do that, effectively, the trust will just rise. Just so happen that human beings are beings imperfect. Unless people are held to account, well, you know, they will tend to cheat a little bit there and a little bit there, and they will push it as far as they can. So any of these recommendations will only be I would say productive if we can actually find or develop a culture of, of accountability, which is to some extent much more difficult in an environment that is becoming more virtual. I mean, if you're a client, you never see them, you never shake and with them, you just see them over Zoom or the all kinds of electronic or virtual platform. The kind of cues that you get from interaction with human where you, you can feel after a while that you can trust these people it's not the same it's it, it doesn't scale very well so that's one of the issue that we have as we as we move it up and up in different layer of the hierarchy in government it's getting more and more difficult so every political party every company every school board needs to develop the culture of accountability to one another to the um, 
I would say, mission or values that the institution is sharing on the front page. But very often, the biggest issue we're facing is the gap between what we think we're going to try to do or we say we're doing is so big that eventually it's meaningless. So all of these recommendations, I think, needs to be examined under this, this filter. How can we make it? Can we implement it and make and all people accountable for not doing it? And what's the best way to do that? And, and when people feel that they're being held accountable, they tend to do their best. They don't. They don't try to uh, go around and and and, and not being. Uh, I would say, act with integrity. Heather. So. We have 80 pages of recommendations. Put them together. I think it's close to 80 pages. So, there, I mean, there's no way you can pick or choose what's the most important. Um, and as, as Ken and Bernard have said, they cut across uh, sort of every part of the fabric of Canadian society. To me, I think one of the most important things that we heard at the inquiry uh, and around which many of our recommendations are based is that we really need to um, treasure and protect Canadians' freedom of speech. Freedom of speech really undercut so much of everyone's experience, particularly when we Canada was relying on experts and then there was no ability for experts to be heard who had a different point of view. Um, Canadians themselves trying to express their uh, personal experiences uh, not being heard and hearing one line always from the Canadian media uh, to that what was never questioned. And so many of our recommendations uh, employ, um, you know, the protection of freedom of speech in uh, as, as part of a connecting thread, I think, between them. And, uh, and that's what I would have to say about that. Thank you. Janice, would you like to chirp in on this? Hi, Jason. I'd just like to highlight, um, which is some people know and some people don't know, that the commissioners come from very, very different backgrounds and professional experiences. And so when we were doing the recommendations and actually writing the text, we brought our professionalism, obviously what we've learned professionally, but we've also brought our human experiences to the table, which is really what that whole report is about, is that each and every one of us came from a place that none of the other ones, other commissioners had. And yet we were able to bring forth recommendations and to prioritize recommendations based on the fact that it, people were hurt. People have been destroyed. People have been stomped on. Their rights have been stomped on. Our constitutional rights and freedoms were negated at every level. And I think in spite of our professional background and in spite of the places we've come from, we were able to prioritize the things that were important for the Canadian citizens of this great nation. And our other side of this is that each and every one of us as commissioners had one motivation, if there was any motivation that would stand out for each of us, and that is we wanted to make this country great again. We wanted to restore what was lost and turn this around in a way that people, ordinary people, hardworking people from whatever walk of life they're in could stand strong and be proud of who they are in this great nation. So just take into consideration that, yeah, we couldn't quite prioritize uh, a list of recommendations that would not kind of take away from somebody else's, 
But at the end of the day, it's a good report. It's a good inquiry. It's done by people who really care about Canada and we want to see things improve. Thank you for your question. And thank you, Mr. Dahl. Our next question comes from Mr. Mike Hilliard. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mike Hilliard, uh, son of one of Manitoba's longest serving Manitoba Federation of Labour's president, Robert Hilliard, and uh, one of six million estimated Canadians that lost their careers and livelihoods for not signing up to the program. Now, that being said, um in good faith in actual good faith i truly understand what good faith is all about i've been at bargaining negotiations tables before and whatnot so the ncei has proven to hold integrity truth accountability responsibility empathy and human dignity which has been a beacon of hope for many canadians and humanity around the world compared to our elected governments and municipal representatives who have segregated lies sown seeds of hate and divided Canadian families and households from coast to coast. They threw out all our emergency measure response plans and all other safeguards, multiple layers in fact, but implemented an agenda program that opened Pandora's box, which is still open this very moment with the program still in place. How does the NCI plan to bring its core values of Canadian identity lead our country once and for all, and for the future generations to come, especially facing this tyrannical and most undemocratic Canadian government in history to date, when they will not act in good faith. Well, I think the answer to that is, you lead by example. You know, I think what you've seen from the National Citizens Inquiry, as you point out, is a real effort to be responsible, to be transparent, to represent Canadians in, in a truthful way. And going forward, you know, we have to not only speak about the, 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 the report of the NCI, but we have to make sure that Canadians understand their responsibility in this process of healing. We can't rely on the government. You know, they proved that to us. Uh, you know, there was a testimony by Mr. David Lease who said almost all the institutions in Canada failed Canadians. And in matter of fact, in my opinion, Canadians failed themselves. They didn't stand up. They didn't question. You know, they didn't go and vote. And so I think the answer to that question, at least from my opinion, is that we need to lead by example. We have to continue the next stage of this, you know, the, the report is a is a is a historical document, but it's also an educational document. And the next step of that is to educate the public as to what they can do. We've shown you the problems. We have and we've recommended solutions, but we have to make it clear to Canadians over time what they can do in real terms to take make their government accountable to them. Um, Heather? Well, Ken took my answer about leading by example. <laughs> That's what he gets for going first. Um, so I, I wholeheartedly endorse that. Um, and I think that the 
every member of the National Citizens Inquiry is attempting to lead by example and help lead Canada um, towards a path that uh, would better serve us. I think every Canadian should take a look at the recommendations, see which ones speak to you, uh, see which ones resonate and see which ones you think that you may be able to do something about and then determine how it is that you can go about doing that. Um, and to reach out uh, to those around you who um, may support you in that, uh, to build communities and networks and really um, you know, take your own initiative to move forward what you think you can do. That's it for me, thank you. Janice? Michael, I think you yourself are a good example just by the examples that you gave us. So I think it's speaking to other people, continuing the conversation that has started and not letting go. In terms of our school boards and our governance uh, institutions, I think it's time to put the NCI inquiry report and recommendations in front of them and to say no to anything that they try to impose and make sure that we're standing beside other, other people who are also saying no so that we're the strength in numbers. But I think your example is a good one. Thank you. Bernard? Well, you've said you've covered pretty much uh, the answer. The one thing I would have is that, you know, in the general population, there's a small proportion of people that are, by temperament, willing to raise issue and question the authority. Uh, the other people that don't have that kind of inclination or propensity to question authority should at least uh, come to turn with the idea that when somebody is questioning the authority, maybe they should listen and be open to what the questions are and try to at least come explore the, uh, the question even though sometimes it's it's time consuming and it might be sometime uh, uh, generating all kinds of, of anxiety because you can if you can no longer trust blindly the authority it, it's not it's it's not easy to deal with but unless you're willing to take your own responsibility you don't have to do it alone you do it in community with people that will actually help you in the process and every everybody will do it slowly and gradually until we will reach a tipping point where there's enough of us questioning the authority that are trying to impose things which are not in the best interest of the community. You know, I just want to add to that, that there are all kinds of organizations, what I would call grass, real grassroots organizations that are springing up across the country. And if people don't feel comfortable as a lone wolf, and then I suggest that they seek out those organizations. There's some very good ones in the country, and they're really working towards um, returning power to the people. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hillier. Our next question comes from Matthew Horwood of the Epoch Times. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, congratulations on seeing this through and releasing your final report. Uh, it's good timing because less than a week ago, the panel in Alberta that was studying their response to COVID uh, released their reports, as I'm sure you know. Um, so it had 90 recommendations. I've skimmed through the NCI's report, and it seems to be that there are a lot of parallels. I mean, this Alberta report talks about um, striking a balance between uh, protections and people's rights and freedoms, talks about improving the healthcare system, 
talks about allowing children to remain in school and not close them down. Uh, interestingly, it doesn't say anything in that report about uh, vaccine injuries or deaths or any sort of uh, uh, modifications to the reporting system. But uh, I just want to get your thoughts, given that Preston Manning obviously has connections to, to both of these. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the rec recommendations in this report? Um, and also, alternatively, has Preston Manning given any recent thoughts as to the NCI's like uh, its report or how it's been functioning in the last couple months? So if I understand, you're asking for our opinion on Mr. Manning's report. And to be honest, um, we've been working 12, 15 hour days <laughs> and I honestly am aware of that report, but I have not read it. Um, uh, and I don't know if the other, any of the other um, uh, commissioners have. So let's just ask them. Uh, Bernard, did you, have you read that report? Have you got a comment on it? Well, I haven't read the report in full detail. I've just uh, scanned it uh, for a couple of hours. And I fully agree that this report is, not, I would say, much narrower in terms of the, uh, of the recommendation. I guess it stems from the specific mandates that they were given by the uh, authority in Alberta. And a lot of emphasis is really from this report on what should be done differently from a public health perspective at the government level. Uh, as you know, I mean, if you think, if you are addressing the specific issue of vaccine, vaccine is not something that is being approved at the level of provincial government. It's being approved at the level of the federal government. And I guess that they, they had a mandate to stay within the boundaries of the authority of the provincial level with respect to management of health. That's probably why the report has a, that does not cover different aspects that we did cover during our report. The other thing is that I guess they, they wanted to provide recommendation fairly quickly so they can actually start to implement some of the action. To me, I would say that more than 50% of what they're proposing to do is somewhat covered in our recommendation. So we really, I guess, agree on most of that. And, uh, but then the, the question is, who's going to be the, uh, the lead to make that happen? In Alberta, I guess it's it's up to the uh, the government of Daniel Smith to really move it forward. And I'm hoping that the moment this is starting to be implemented by a provincial government, maybe it will give some uh, impetus to other provincial government to to move along the same path. But uh, as far as the vaccine for specifically, it hasn't been touched, and I haven't seen in the report. Uh, expert uh, testimony or, or report or document that would specifically address that at the level that we did in the commission with the expert that we had, some of which were on the Canadian scene, but a lot of them were from the US and, and, and France, for example, that really did a deep dive into the process of the approval, clinical trials, the uh, all of the, I would say, uh, issues with the, these type of genetic vaccine, they didn't have that in their mandate, so they haven't touched it personally. Heather? Thank you. So I'm, 
also not familiar with the contents of that report. I haven't read it, uh, nor am I familiar with the process that was undertaken to prepare it. Um, to the extent that you say that uh, the recommendations in that report uh, parallel or mirror some of our own, that's probably not surprising to me, um, given that uh, both um, reports were inquiring into what Canada has done. Uh, to the extent that there are differences, I think that's probably a good thing too. It can open up debate and, uh, you know, there's still lots of room for consideration uh, as Canadians about what we should be doing. Um, I, would, I would think these reports can probably be read together. Our report um, brings a real human side to the Canadian experience as a result of us having sat for 24 days listening to Canadians. And if doing in doing that, we've come up with similar recommendations to the other report, then I think you can probably find those parallels to be um, good recommendations um, that are worthy of, of consideration. Thank you. Janice? Honestly, I think since this has started, I've had to sever a lot of the relationships that are in my life because we've just been busy. So I have not had a chance to look at Preston Manning's report, but I will, certainly when this is done. But the other thing that needs to be kind of highlighted here is that when we started, my, my whole uh, uh, focus was on the truth shall prevail. But as we listened to the testimony, we went through a grieving process. I believe that when we finally finished the report, to the extent that we could say, okay, it's good to go, we were released of that grieving process, not totally, because I still believe we're carrying that grieving with us, of listening to so many people who've been hurt and devastated in their in their day to day. Everything was disrupted. And we haven't even begun to speak about the children and the impact on these children of being isolated from their friends and their social networks and their, their structures being taken from them. So I think for me, I'd love to say that I've gotten back into my day-to-day -day as I did before, but since March, our life has been put on hold. And even throughout the summer, writing the report was a 12-hour day every day, trying to get it out in amongst all of our other commitments. So yes, we will get to it. And if there's parallels, that's probably a wonderful thing. But I can't say that I've, I've came from that perspective when we were writing our recommendations that had nothing to do with another report or inquiry that was happening in the rest of the country. It was our heartfelt recommendations from every testimony that we heard that has carried us through this from beginning to end and kept us together just by strengthening one another. So I just, I'd love to say I read it and I will, if you want to get back to me, Matthew, at some point in the future, I'll let you know my thoughts. But for now, we have not read it. But thank you. And Matthew, uh, thank you. Thank you for your question, and just for the people viewing, so that there's no confusion. So, the Alberta government commissioned a report to look into the laws of Alberta that were used during the COVID experience, and to make recommendations as to whether or not those specific laws should be changed. So it was a, a much narrower focus than the NCI. Our next question comes from Chuck Black of the Freedom Forum. Yes, uh, my name is Chuck Black. I'm with an alternative new media group out of Toronto, Ontario, and we don't get paid as much as the legacy media, although I do keep in touch with them. 
And my question isn't just about the public health emergencies government review panel, the Preston Manning-led report about Alberta that came out last week, but I, I also have a comment about an, an earlier report and a recent CBC article on it. This is a 2021 report, also helmed by Manning, uh, of something called a report to the COVID commission. And I know many of my colleagues, former colleagues in the legacy media are going to say Preston Manning's 2021 report, mostly fiction, but it, it, it showed the way forward in how to do a pandemic report, biases any results that could come out of not just last week's Manning-led report from Alberta, but today's National Citizens Inquiry final report. I'm, I'm hoping you can uh, answer any questions. Uh, answer the question. Uh, Preston Manning has written three reports. He was involved in the genesis of the NCI when it started out, but then he went to the Alberta report. Uh, Legacy Media is going to 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 tar this report with the perception that it's biased by Manning's preconceived notions. How are you going to respond to that? And commissioners, can I can I step in first because. I have personal knowledge that you don't have about the formation of the NCI. So I don't want you answering a question without that factual information. So there was a group of people that did not involve Preston Manning that began the citizens hearings, which you can go to citizenshearings.ca and see the three days of testimony there. Um, Preston Manning then joined that group. And after the citizens hearings, it was decided, well, why don't we hold wider hearings? I can tell you as one of the founding members of that and likely every other member of that group, I didn't, wasn't even aware that Preston had written anything until we were well down that process. And then another group came up with the same idea, well, let's hold wider hearings. And they joined us going forward. So it actually is factually misleading to think that Preston Manning was the brainchild or move this along. And I don't wanna minimize Preston's assistance and help in moving it along because you know, he's just got a, a depth of knowledge and he's worked with people so extensively that he was extremely helpful and we're thankful. Um, but to say that this was his project or he started it, I would expect that most of the people that were involved in forming the NCI have not read his, um, his fictional narrative and some of them may not even be aware of it. So commissioners, as you answer the question, the question assumes some facts and knowledge that um, as somebody involved from the ground floor, I would, I would question as not correct. Well, you know, from a commissioner standpoint, we continually emphasize that we are independent commissioners, and that is the truth. I was not aware of this report that you're referring to. I'm still not aware of it, actually. I guess I'll have to go look. Um, I, I, I don't think I had any conversations with Preston Manning throughout this entire process. I was in a meeting or maybe two where he was a participant, but certainly there's been no communication that I'm aware of between any of the commissioners and Mr. Manning. So for the, of course, the legacy press will try to make some kind of a connection there if it's advantageous to them. And, you know, they, they're, um, 
their uh, incredible capabilities of propaganda and uh, saying things uh, by insinuation um, are, are, have been shown to us during the last three years. But I can say, uh, and I'll ask, ask each one of the the uh, commissioners to respond, but I had no conversations with Mr. Manning about what this report will be, and I had no direction at all. And as the chair of the commissioners, I, I'm telling you as the chairman of the commissioners, I had no direction at all from the commission as to what was going to be in this report. This report was developed independently by the four commissioners on their own without um, any um, uh, coercion or bias that I am aware of. So let me ask the other commissioners to comment on that. Jan uh, Janice, do you want to comment on that as well? I'm sorry, my internet went down, so I missed the question, but I'm going to kind of pick up from Ken there. Uh, from I, I'm going to reiterate what I said before. All four of us came from, commissioners came from very different places, and we have had very different professions. And when we wrote the recommendations, it was from that perspective. I don't know if you're still there. But there was absolutely nobody that I know of that was coerced or told that they had to uh, align with this, any kind of perspective. We came from our heart perspective after hearing numerous testimonies from witnesses who shared their very personal lives with us. Bernard, do you want to add to that? Well, I would just say that uh, in preparing the report, we just we engage into the same process as we've been through with the witnesses that were sitting uh, before us and were swearing to say the truth and nothing more than the truth. And that's exactly what we've done and trying to reflect to the best of our ability uh, what the witnesses provided to understand or to share their experience about the, the the crisis there was absolutely no other motivation besides trying to get to the best of our ability to their truth and and try to explain and display it in our report heather so the first time i became aware of preston manning having having written anything other than this report that was released a week or two ago was just now when you asked the question um i don't think that we, I think each of us um, have come to this process independently and have conducted ourselves independently. I know when I was um, committing to become a commissioner, I made it very clear to the NCI that I was not interested in advancing any agendas. I was not here to help anybody's position. I was here solely to hear the evidence and make up my mind and write a report about it. That's what I've done. That's what my co-commissioners have done. And, you know, that's all I can really have to say about it. Thank you. So, um, Mr. Black, thank you for your question. And our final question today comes from Jamie Saleh. Greetings, commissioners and Mr. Buckley. Thank you so much for everything that you have done for Canadians as honest truth seekers in this inquiry and thank you for allowing me to ask a question today. 
Like millions of Canadians, I was tremendously impacted by the trucker convoy. In fact, uh, this convoy gave me the courage to start speaking out publicly. And for those that knew what this meant for Canadians, it was a true act of bravery. Excuse me. To me, it was heroic, and I'm forever grateful to all of them. With what you know and have experienced through the NCI testimonies, what do we need to do now as a collective to continue the act of bravery like we saw with the truckers? How can we help rebuild our country? Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Um, you know, I'm going to reiterate that Canadians should not be expecting a white knight to come running down the road. They should not expect their corrupt government to come and do what's right all of a sudden. And whose fault is that? If you leave a child unsupervised in a candy shop, is it the child's fault if they succumb after a couple of hours and take candy? That's what we've done with our political process. You know, we've been hoodwinked for decades, hoodwinked by party politics. It's like the cup and pea game, hoodwinked by how they work in secrecy. You know, Jamie, we had um, another election, a school board trustee election uh, here in Manitoba uh, two weeks ago. It was in a city called Brandon, Manitoba. 35,000 eligible voters, 3,000 people voted. 3,000 out of 35,000. So when the government starts to do criminal acts, in my opinion, and when they start to represent special interest groups and they start to ignore their citizenry, who have we really got to blame? And if we can courageously, the courage here is to admit the part that we all played in this and then grasp the idea that we can do something about it. You know, I could talk for hours on this subject, as you may likely know, but I won't. Everybody will get mad at me. <laughs> but, you know, this is up to Canadians. And in my opinion, this is a kind of a fork in the road with the NCI, where a piece of the NCI needs to continue in the educational process as to what happened and what's in this report but another piece, and maybe it's a different organization, needs to start educating Canadians as to how the process works and what they can do as individuals. And I'm not talking about, and I don't want to take away from those people who talk about constitutions and they talk about corporations and all this stuff, but what does the average Canadian do with that information? You know, if Canada's a corporation and da-da-da-da-da, what can I do about it? Not a lot, but what I can do is I can talk to my neighbor and they can talk to their neighbor and we maybe have a meeting and talk about how we're going to vote or we're going to vote at all. So we really, part of this is we've ex now exposed, you know, the, the, in my opinion, what the crimes have been and the crimes have gone from, from fraud to murder, in my opinion. And we've presented solutions, but we also have to now start educating Canadians that don't be overwhelmed this is what you can do. And we all have a part to play. It's not just the person who can stand up and speak on a stage or the person knows how to write things. Everybody in Canada has a role to play. I, I tell a story about, you know, it's kind of like the story of the, um, the fishes and the loaves. And you have to ask yourself the question, who packed that lunch? 
We don't talk about that person. And it's like this for us Canadians. Maybe you can't do a speech. Maybe you haven't got a whole lot of money, but you might be able to call a meeting and darn it, you might bake the best cinnamon buns in town. And it's those cinnamon buns that attract hundreds of people into this meeting. And we start to educate Canadians again. So uh, I maybe drifted a little bit, Jamie, and my apologies. I am passionate about this. And uh, if I could ask on uh, Janice to uh, add to that. Well, first, I'm going to say you should not apologize, Jamie, for being emotional about trying to save our country. Uh, when I wrote the first draft of my script, I read it to my husband just so that I could kind of give him an idea of where I was going. And one of the things that happened about halfway through is I couldn't read anymore. And I think there's a lot of Canadians who feel that way. But I think going forward, we need to have a conversation with our neighbours our friends, our family. We need to reestablish relationships that we've lost throughout this COVID era. We need to say no to government. Those people who are still in their houses that have never come out because they've been publicly shamed, we need to go knock on their door and bring the cookies. We need to have a cup of coffee with everybody that we can within our circles and have them do the same with their circles. And one by one, we will change this country. And it won't be overnight, for sure. But even just reestablishing the relationships that we had pre-COVID would be a good start. Look at all those Christmas cards we used to send out. Look at those names and pick up the phone and start talking to people. And then from the NCI perspective, let's just continue the conversation. Because together, we will win. Thank Heather? you. Yeah, so I really echo what both Ken and Janice have said. Accountability, obviously, critically important. It's what a lot of our recommendations are focused on. Um, accountability for the actions of others, but also we need to look at our own actions and take accountability for the part that each of us have played. Um, and in, in that process, I think we also can't lose sight of kindness, um, being kind to each other, being kind to ourselves, and really, going back to our core principles um, of connection, family, love. And I think that's really the only way that we can go forward and heal as a country. Thank you. Berna? Yeah, I mean, uh, what you all said was very moving. Uh, I, I think we have to foster as strongly as we can the power of love, because this is where it all starts. We have to love ourselves. We have to forgive ourselves for our mistakes. We have to hold ourselves accountable, and that's fine. This is how we grow. And at the same time, we have to entertain relationship with people around us to help them hold themselves accountable and be accountable for what they're doing. You have to take responsibility. At the same time, we have to give them a chance to be wrong once in a while and say, that's okay. You know, that's pretty basic community building. And it starts with your family and your neighbors and everybody, everywhere where you work in any organization, you have to foster this kind of interaction based on benevolence. And I would say being open that uh, we live together and together we can actually make things much better or much worse, depending on how we 
entertain our ideas or thought being toxic, negative, why can't we can switch to see the best in everybody around us? And guess what? When you look at people with a loving eyes and call from them the best they can give, well, that's what happened. So that, um, that is the final question that we're going to allow today just simply because we have to take a break. And, and for those of us uh, or those watching us, we're repeating the commission being reconvened in the French language for those Canadians who are French speaking. Um, for those of you who participated today, I think you'll agree with me that once again, when we participate in the National Citizens Inquiry, uh, we have a somewhat unique experience as we come together. And we feel like we're part of something bigger because we are part of something bigger. And, and <clears throat> my experience today has been that the commissioners have shared uh, not just wisdom, but compassion with us. And that the questions that were brought forward by the press and the members of the public um, to show some profound insight and uh, they were all good questions and the dialogue is something that that I think all Canadians should watch. So I'll encourage all of you to share the links that will come out for this because I think that this would be another healing experience for us to share with our neighbors going forward. On behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry uh, Commissioners, thank you for your continued service um, for those of the press and the public that came to ask questions on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we thank you. And for those of us that have participated by watching, thank you.
Maybe I can 